0: good to be able to be together in this space. And those of you that are joining us online, we are glad that you are here and a part of worship at Galilee today. Here's something interesting I learned this past week. I, I like to read the paper. And so, you know, I read articles here and there in the newspaper throughout the week. And one of the articles said that as of right now, the the median rate, the the average rate for being able to rent a house like a three bedroom-ish two bath house in America is $1,800 a month. $1,800, some of y'all are like, yeah, we know Nick, we're paying that. It's crazy how much it is right now. And so when I was reading in another, a separate, a separate article in the newspaper about a house in Fairfax, Virginia, that's only $800,000. Now it's for sale for only $800,000, which I know is a lot of money, but it's a four bedroom, three bath house, Beautiful-looking house on the outside, and they showed the picture in the article, and you would not think this would be possible, especially not in that area, that kind of northern Virginia, D.C.-ish area, where everything is just crazy expensive. I mean, we're talking millions of dollars, not not under a mil. So $800,000 you could get this house for. And so that would seem like a pretty good deal, but kind of two things. One thing, it probably needs about $20,000 of work done to it, kind of updating some things that are not, not right on the house. Now, that's not that crazy, right? You think, okay, I mean, if the other houses are you know 1.5 million, I can get this one for 800K and put 20,000 in it, I'm good to go. There's only one little catch. It has a basement. Are you, you wanna buy it yet? I got you on the hook yet. It's got a full basement. The only problem is, is that it comes with a squatter in the basement. True story. You can buy this house for $800,000 and you get the house, the four bedrooms, the three baths, but you also get the squatter living in the basement. True story. This person took advantage, unfortunately, of a senior and got these rights now to be able to live in this house. That's squatter's rights to live in that basement and know they're not paying rent. Just stay in there for free. So you can begin the, imagine, I'm going to begin the foundation of my family. I'm going to buy an $800,000 house and I'm going to get the squatter in the basement. Not a great foundation to build a life on, to get a life started on. We'd all agree on that. In our parable today, in this series, we've been exploring Jesus' parables, called it Storyteller all about the messages that Jesus is sending us through his parables. And at the heart of the message today, it's pretty simple. What are we building our foundation on in this life? What is our foundation? What are we about? What do we care most about? For us as a church right now, one of the things we're doing to say, hey, we love the church, we're valuing the church, we are building on a bigger foundation as the church. Uh, I can't help but think, as I'm thinking about our, our big give that we're doing today, hopefully you know about this by now. We have these envelopes you can give and that's gonna go towards the work we're gonna do in here, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But as I, I, got, it, I got started thinking about the foundations that we build upon as a church, and make no mistake, the foundation is Jesus Christ and the word of God. And that will, that will never change. That's what this church is built upon, has been for 150 plus years. But I couldn't help but think about the fact that you and I, as a church, as a part of a church that's over 150 years old, in many ways, we get to build upon the foundation of brothers and sisters in Christ that have come before us. And so in a few weeks, when we begin the renovation of this space, So next Sunday, you'll still meet in here. But the first Sunday in June, we'll be meeting in our Family Life Center for uh, probably about two months, not quite two months, we hope. So while we're doing that, they're going to be in here renovating all kinds of wonderful things, sound upgrades and video and all these kinds of things need to happen when equipment is 20 years old. Uh, Updating pews. These things are going to be beautiful. They're already beautiful, but they're going to make them even more beautiful. And then there's going to be new carpet. And one of the things about the carpet is when they pull this carpet up to put the new carpet down, if you're in here, if you're able to be in here when that happens, you're going to see the prayers that were written by the generations that have come before us on this floor when they, you know, dedicated this building. Back in 2003, 2004, they were probably writing around 2003. On this floor are those prayers of generations that have come before and I just think about how symbolically across our whole campus, because you can go to the older part of our campus and you can see even more ways that foundationally we build, of course, on Jesus Christ, on his word. And, and beyond that, everything else pales in comparison. But people that have come before us, we get to be a part of something that they've helped establish. And so we get to do our part. Part of it's through this big give but you can look and see this image over on the other side of our campus. We have some literal cornerstones on the building. And the idea of this cornerstone is to say, this is what we're about. This is who we are. It's here that the word of God might be preached at Galilee Christian Church. That's why we build buildings so that we can reach people with the gospel. I know we think, oh, well, you shouldn't need a building. Okay, I mean, and that's, that's a fine perspective. But the bottom line is, we do, we use it. In our westernized context, building's a part of what we do as reaching out and inviting other people in. So we want this space to be excellent, we want it to meet the needs for what we're trying to do worship wise, and we want it to ultimately be a place, quite honestly, that people are wanting to be in. Because when they're here, man, they're gonna wanna be here more, they're gonna wanna praise God, they're gonna wanna grow. All these things are a part of what we get to pour into as the church. So we we get to do our part. And I just think it's really cool to think about all the generations that have come before and how that ought to influence what we do as the church. But today, as we start and dig into this story, I want you to think less kind of, you know, about so much the church as a whole and more about you. Normally I'd be asking you to think kind of much bigger picture, think about the whole church. Today, I want you to dial in on your own heart. And I want you to hear this word from Jesus, because it's not ultimately a word from me, y'all. This is a word from Jesus, it's his word, it's his story. And I want us to just open ourselves up to this message that he has for us about where our foundations are lying. Look here, Matthew 21, 33 through 45. This really becomes a picture a beautiful picture that Jesus paints. Two weeks in a row, we're dealing with a parable that you know, kind of takes place in a vineyard. Uh, not on purpose, but just the way it is. And this is something Jesus used as a common illustration. All right, he says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers, and he went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. All right, now what's Jesus talking about? This story is illustrating to Jesus' audience at the time, this Jewish audience, that God had laid these foundations. He had built the, the, uh, the beginnings of the followers of, of God, right? The, the Israel was his uh, chosen people. And so he got them set up and then he left them with the responsibility but then he, he kind of left. So listen to what it says. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. When he sent other servants to them more than the first time, uh, then he sent them. And the tenants treated them the same way. This was Jesus saying, and, and he says this in other places in scripture you stoned the prophets, like you killed the prophets that God sent to you. And he says, This is what you've done. This is you. You've rejected God and your generations have rejected God. You and I, this is a cool thing for us at Galilee, we get to just slow down for a minute and think, wow, we get to be a part of so many generations that have come before that have not rejected God. They have kept the faith. They have given sacrificially of time and talent and service. And I think about all those things we get to be a part of and it's beautiful. But in Jesus' story, he is calling them out. He's saying, you were all set up. You had everything you needed, and then God sent you messengers, then you rejected them. You killed them, you stoned them. So, verse 37, he says, last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This was, of course, Jesus' way of telling them what they were about to do, wasn't it? Because when Jesus, the son of God, came to them, surely they'll respect the son. Now that the son has come to save and has come as the Messiah, that all Israel, look now, all Israel was supposed to be on the lookout for. And then he gets there and they reject him. And Jesus says, this, I'm basically, I'm telling you this story. This is me. You're gonna kill me. The, the father has sent the son and now you're gonna reject me like you rejected the prophets and you're gonna kill the son. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. I mean, look, y'all. They knew what justice looked like for what they had done wrong. (laughs) They just didn't realize at this very point, that's me. Like, I'm the one that's rejected. I'm the one that's rejecting the son. I'm the one that's rejecting the father. I'm the one that's a part of generations that have rejected the prophets and the message of God. They needed to apply it to themselves. And they'll get there. Give them a minute. Jesus Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. In some translations, capstone is translated cornerstone. So really you can look at that as the same idea. Fits better for what we're talking about today. Says the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Hey, listen. That's you. Do you know that? That's you. You are now, as it was that Israel was God's chosen people and was unique in that way, it is now that the kingdom has been given unto you. The real question is, what are you doing with it? What will you do with it? What will we collectively do with it? It says, he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. So they got it, and it probably took them a minute. It clearly took them a minute. My prayer is for us is that we hear this message to Jesus that is a, from Jesus that is aimed straight at our heart this morning. And here's the hard question. What is my cornerstone? Or maybe more specifically and appropriately today who is my cornerstone? Who? What gets in the way of the answer to this question of who, what, who is my cornerstone? What gets in the way of me answering that question consistently with the answer that I know should be the answer? I mean, you learned it in Sunday school, Jesus, right? You write like 99% of the time. I know it's Jesus. I would say it's Jesus. I know the right answer, but all the areas of inconsistency in my life and all the ways that I know in my heart of hearts, Jesus is not the cornerstone of that area. Oh, yeah. And yeah, he's not really the cornerstone of that area either. Oh, yeah. And I I guess that other area, I don't really need him to know about that. So he doesn't have to be cornerstone of that either. Right? I mean let's just be honest everybody has these kinds of struggles and at the heart of the problem for us being able to answer this question of yes Jesus is the cornerstone of every area of my life at the heart of this problem is one simple word idols yeah Idols are our problem. You say, well, Nick, what are you talking about? I don't have any golden statues of calves. I'm not like Nebuchadnezzar. I haven't built a 90 something foot statue of myself and I got people bowing down to worship. What are you talking about? Listen, your idols don't look like they used to. Back in those days when they literally melted gold and made them into the state, sta- you know, statues of animals and bowed down and worshiped them and them. But listen to me. Your idols now are actually more dangerous than those were. And you know, I think, well, what are you talking about? I mean, how, how could my idols be a bigger problem than somebody bowing down to a golden calf? Hey, look now, at least with a golden calf, it's obvious. That's definitely an idol, right? You're not going to miss that. You're not going to mistake that. The problem with our idols today is they tend to take the shape of things that are not nearly as insidious or don't seem as nearly evil to us, or seem in many cases are something that's totally fine. But we let them get out of whack. So what is an idol? How do we define it? Well, I think Tim Keller, the great author and preacher, says this well, and I'm going to give you his definition. He says, an idol is something we cannot live without. We must have it. Therefore, it drives us to break rules we once honored to harm others, even ourselves, in order to get it. An idol, look friends, an idol is anything that is more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God does has become an idol. And everyone in this room struggles with those kinds of things. Everyone in this room has areas of their life where Jesus is not the cornerstone of that area. And it's a problem It's a problem that we have to draw out. Anything that you seek to give, or I'm sorry, anything that you seek to get from it, only what God can and should ultimately give you has become an idol. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that you feel like if I should lose it, I'm not even sure my life is worth living, it's become an idol. We love our idols because idols give us a sense and a feeling of being in control. And we love feeling in control. We just do. And lots of times we can isolate and identify these idols by doing what I kind of hinted at just a minute ago, by looking at our nightmares What are the things that I fear most? Again, what are the things that if I lost it, if I didn't have it, I would feel lost? These things, these questions help us identify the things that we have made idols to our heart and areas of our life that are not fully submitted to Jesus Christ as cornerstone. Idols are a problem whether we think they are or not. No person, no person can give you everything that you need. No person can be the answer to filling the hole that is in your heart. To filling the sense and the feeling of insecurity or inadequacy. No person can ultimately carry and hold up under the weight of you. They just can't. And they were never Meant to. This is why lots of marriages struggle. This is why some friendships struggle. This is why individuals struggle. Because we've put our stock, we've put the weight of ourselves and our needs onto people that were not designed to carry us. As my kids have, uh, you know, when they were really little, they were really easy to carry. And when they were, you know, babies and toddlers, you just snatch them right up. Easy. As they got bigger, there were times they'd still want me to carry them. Oh, my goodness, you're getting so big, right? We've all said that. You pick up a, 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 a grandchild or a, a daughter, a son, a, you know, a, a niece, a nephew, whatever. You, you have that feeling. Just gets that point. Where it doesn't make sense, does it? So for us, as we are thinking about trying to really examine the idols in our lives this morning, because they are the things that keep us from having Jesus be our cornerstone. There's really four things that you can ultimately do when you are confronted with this truth that I have laid before you today through the word of Jesus Christ. The very first thing you can do when you identify the fact that you have idols is you can blame the things that are disappointing you and try to move on to better ones. But really, that's just the way of continued idolatry and spiritual addiction. Listen, these things are no longer completing me and making me feel happy anymore because, oh, by the way, that's the nature of idols anyway. They will always come up short. They will always leave you feeling wanting. Okay, so you can say, I'm going to replace those and get some other ones. But you know how that story ends, right? That is a endless cycle. Second thing you can do is you can blame yourself and beat yourself up. But that's just the way of self-loathing and shame. Nobody's trying to take you down that path this morning. No, we're trying to help you identify that idols are a problem so that you can actually deal with them and move forward in a healthy way with Christ as cornerstone rock of every area of your life. Not just some, not just lip service, not just when you're at church on Sunday morning, day in, day out, peace and strength that come from knowing Christ as true cornerstone third thing you can do is look you can when when you're confronted with idols is you can blame the world basically saying that's somebody else's fault I just am the way that I am because of the situations that I'm in I am the way I am because there is temptation I am the way I am because life is hard this is the way that we ultimately become hard and cynical and empty because we get caught up in looking in the wrong direction for what it is we need now let me be clear many of these things that become and can become idols very often are not in their very nature wrong or evil do you hear me It is how we relate to them. It is how much weight we put into them. It is how much we run to them that becomes the problem. Not these things, you know, money or responsibility slash power or, you know, uh, what people think of us. All these kinds of things that can become idols are not necessarily inherently evil But they can very easily get out of whack. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, this is the fourth thing, and this is it, really. This is where we need to get to. We can reorient our life. So you can hear this message today, and you'll be like, I suffered through this dude for like 20, you'll probably be 25 minutes by the time I'm done, okay? Suffered through this guy for 25 minutes. Nah, man, let's go to lunch. So you can do that, and I can't stop you. Or... You could hear this word from the Lord and you could decide, you know what? It's time for me to really examine myself and reorient some areas of my life that I know are not grounded and founded on the cornerstone of Jesus. I know I've been pulling some things back from him. And oh, by the way, I could just take a minute and look at this parable of the tenants and I could learn from it. What message Jesus was sending to people who had rejected him? You say, well, I'm not a person that's rejected Jesus. Yes, you have. You you may not have rejected him in a macro sense, but every one of us has areas of our life that we have rejected him in. I hope you hear me saying that this morning, trying to be super clear about that. So that you don't sit back and say, well, overall, I'm doing okay. I know people that are way worse than me. Y'all, they ain't your standard, okay? No, no, you are trying to build a life on the cornerstone, and by the way, you can't cut corners when you build. You just can't. So when we look at the story, and we say, what did Jesus tell them and teach them? The very first thing he says to them is, hey, the expectation is that those whom God had left this responsibility of the vineyard to that they would produce a harvest. So why don't we just start there? Let's be a people that say, I'm gonna examine my life. I'm gonna ruthlessly, relentlessly root out my idols. And in all those areas where I have put my stock in them for my peace and my comfort and my strength and my hope and my help, and I could go on. I'm going to say, no, Jesus, you are Lord of all. You are the cornerstone of that area of my life. I will not hide it from you. I will not hold it back from you. I will trust you with it because I know you are good and you can be trusted with it. And when I do that, I'm making a commitment that says, I'm going to live a life grounded in Christ that produces a harvest for him. I'm going to reprioritize my life. Remember verse 34. He said, Jesus said to them, when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Look, you don't hear me say this enough, but I'm going to remind you of an essential truth of Christianity. Jesus is coming back again. Just like in this story, when he laid it out to him and he said, the father sent the son back. Now, this was the first time he's relating to them. This is what happens when he sent the son back to you. You rejected him just like you did the prophets. There's a second time. There's a second coming. That's why we call it the second coming of Jesus Christ, right? He's coming again. And all the more this story will apply To you and me. So. When the harvest time approached. He sent his servants to the tenant. To collect his fruit. The expectation is. Jesus is coming again. I'm going to be somebody that right now. That is serving in the midst of his kingdom. That when he finds me. He's going to find me producing a crop. He's going to find me producing fruit. In my life. That's where this has to start root out the idols, make Jesus the cornerstone, and it's gonna show up in the things I'm doing day in and day out. You won't be perfect, but you also won't make excuses. You'll get after it. Second thing is this. We have to ask ourselves a question in relationship to what we're learning from this parable. Are we, am I rejecting Jesus? What areas of my life am I rejecting Jesus in? Am I examining those areas? Like, am I being honest with God about that? This is maybe the most important question you will ask yourself in this message today. Look at verse 39. It says, so they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, he's talking about in that part of the story, the son, saying that when they were confronted with the son, they rejected him and they threw him out. And you would say, well, Nick, that doesn't apply to me. I don't want to reject Jesus. I'm not trying to throw Jesus out. I haven't done anything like that. Well, no, you haven't done it overtly. I mean, no, you've not said that out loud. I mean, nobody, nobody in their right mind that, that knows the Lord is going to do that. Look, it's why... When we imagine that whole idea of like you guys, how many of y'all have a WWJD bracelet on? Like right now, I'm just curious, how many? Okay, zero, nobody, like literally, we're gonna get y'all some bands. I, it, this, okay, that, that whole thing started again like a year or two ago and I just figured everybody was still wearing them. They wore out, I guess. Y'all totally ruined my illustration, but I'll try it anyway. No, you get it though. We, we wore those bands, whether you're like me when I was in high school or whether this kind of resurgence that happened a couple of years ago and people started wearing them again. The idea was a simple one, right? Hey, if I can imagine Jesus in the room with me, if I can imagine Jesus with me, I won't do X, Y, or Z. Because I, when I think about that, I don't want to do it. One of the things we've tried to talk to our kids about, Abby and I, is like, hey, when that dating season happens for you, when that comes, you know, for my girls when they're like 30, when that happens right? You know, you're going to remember, you need to be thinking about, right? That that Jesus is with you in that relationship. Jesus is beside you, alongside you when you are with that boy or that girl, right? Because we want them thinking that way. And so true, so too it is true for us That we, when we think about that idea of like, I'm not going to overtly reject Jesus. If I could imagine him in the room with me, I'm not going to say no to him. I'm not going to reject him. I'm going to do what he wants me to do. The problem is we step out the door day in and day out, frequently going it on our own. And led around by the nose, not by Jesus, but by those things that have become idols to us. Because those are the things we're really ultimately pursuing, passionate about putting our time, our talent, our energy into. And so they lead us. They end up becoming our motivating factor. And that's a mistake. There's all kinds of things that, that we let get us out of whack. That we, and this really comes down to my priorities. Because you say, well, I haven't rejected Jesus overtly. I would never do that. Like we said, yeah, I get it. Yeah, nobody's going to do that. Most, most nobody's going to do that especially not in this room. But when it comes to the areas of priority in my life, when it comes to the things that I make, what I do, like one of the things that I make most important to me, the ways that I spend my time, my commitments... Do those things reflect my relationship with Jesus? Do they reflect that Jesus is the cornerstone over everything, or have I allowed other things to set priorities, whether it's in my own life or in the life of my family? Am I modeling for my kids? An example that shows Jesus is the cornerstone and everything revolves around him. Not around sports, not around school, not around, you know, money, whatever it is. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves. They're only bad when they get out of their respective place. They can become an idol. They can become a problem. And they can throw off our priorities. Final thing is this. Look, when we're examining our lives when we're looking at what Jesus is teaching us in this, I think sometimes we just need to slow down long enough to say, Jesus, when is the last time I looked at you and just rejoiced in the fact that you are marvelous, that you are good, that you love me? Yeah, sometimes we just need to fall in love with Jesus again. Why do I say this? If you look back what Jesus said, he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. When's the last time we thought upon Jesus as our cornerstone and just rejoiced in the fact that he is marvelous? He is so good. He is beautiful. Marvelous. I think most days we don't really slow down long enough to appreciate Jesus. And this is a common problem. We, not on purpose, we devalue Jesus Christ, Son of God, creator of the universe, and our Savior. Like I say, none of us would do it on purpose, but it happens. We devalue him. If I asked you, do you want to devalue Jesus? You'd always be like, absolutely not. I was um, watching one of these documentaries. I I love documentaries. It's one of my favorite things to watch on TV. When I do watch TV, it's right up there at the top. So I was watching a documentary about famous artwork. I'm going to finish with this story, so hang with me. It was, you know, these famous artwork, you know, things from the Renaissance and all kinds of different periods. Um, They were talking about the biggest problem in the art world right now, as you might have guessed, is counterfeits. It's fakes. So they have a whole you know they have a group of people that try to authenticate these you know pictures and They've, gotten, they've got a guy, there's a guy in China that can make these, they can reproduce these masterworks. And they look so good that even some of the experts have trouble identifying that they're not real. They'll weather the canvas they're going to paint on. They do all these kinds of things to make them look aged. Then they can paint these perfect copies that can fool even the best eyes. But eventually, through some science and all these kinds of things, they can get to the bottom of it. It's a problem in the art world. So then when I read this article uh, last week about a Raphael, a, a painter from the Renaissance, there was this picture that somebody had that was a copy, it was an early copy of a Raphael. Now this this picture sold in the year right around 1900 for what would be today about $2,600, okay? So, you know, a good amount of money, but not like a crazy amount of money, because remember, It was supposed to just be a copy of a Raphael. Well, as they were showing this on a documentary about art, a person who's an expert in it said, man, that that looks a lot like a Raphael. Like, I think that might be real. And so they started doing all the research. I won't bore you with the rest of the details. Long story short, they discovered that this was, this picture hanging in somebody's kitchen like in their regular old house was an authentic Raphael photo or a painting worth not $2,600, but $26 million. They had this marvelous, beautiful, amazing work of art in their kitchen, just regular hanging on the wall, failing to appreciate how truly marvelous it was. And again, the illustration ought to be obvious there. How often do I treat Jesus the same way and allow other things to take priority over my marvelous Savior? Jesus says in the end, in verse 44, he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. His point there is simple. I am the cornerstone. I am the one to whom those who have it fall on them, because one day every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And those who stumble over it because they just don't realize, they just don't know, they just didn't get it that Jesus loves them and died for them and is meant to be their everything. We have some choices to make about how we're going to relate to God. Are we going to make him the cornerstone of our lives or are we gonna continue to go our own way? One day we will, and this story teaches us, all be held accountable by Jesus. He's coming back. And my prayer is that for you and me, he would find us faithful. He would find us building a life not built on the idols that encroach, not built on ourselves, but built on him. May it be so for you and me. Let's pray.